You're listening to The Cutting Edge, Voices from the AHA. Hello, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal and host of The Cutting Edge. I want to apologize for my voice. I've had a really bad cold for the last couple of weeks and haven't been able to do much of anything. Certainly haven't been able to go climbing. But the show must go on. And we've got a really good show this time, featuring the first ascent of a big peak in India by two American climbers, Tino Villanueva and Alan Rousseau. Before we get going, I want to thank a couple of companies that have stepped up to sponsor this episode of The Cutting Edge. One of them is Chilo Gear. If you look closely at the photos of Alan and Tino on this climb in India, you'll see the distinctive white Dyneema fabric of the Chilo Gear work sacks on their backs, which is not too surprising since Chilo Gear packs have been used on many top climbs in the last few years. Chilo Gear packs are built right in Portland, Oregon, and right now the company has guide service packs in assorted colors ready to ship within a day of ordering. This episode is also brought to you by Gravel, the maker of great ice tools, crampons, and other gear. Gravel's new G20 Plus crampon is more versatile than ever, with a replaceable, more downward turn front point, and a new third row of points for more secure foot placements. And by Bayel, whose Opera 8.5mm rope has single, double, and twin ratings, along with Unicore technology. It's a feather light, 48 grams per meter, making it the guide's choice for winding alpine routes and long days in the mountains. Now to this episode, a very cool talk with Alan Rousseau, a 31-year-old mountain guide from Salt Lake City. He and Tino, another guide from the Seattle area, just did the first ascent of a 6,495-meter peak in the Zanskar region of India. That's 21,309 feet in American. Even though they live, I don't know, eight or 900 miles apart, they formed a really solid partnership. In the last few years, they've had a couple of reports of new routes in Nepal in the AHA. But I think it's safe to say this is by far their biggest success yet. I'm not going to belabor this intro because the interview covers the story well. Here's Alan speaking with AHA editor Andy Anderson to tell you what happened. Okay, uh, Alan, welcome to The Cutting Edge. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about you and Tino's new route on uh, Runga Farka. Um, looks pretty awesome. The North Ridge, 1,200 meters long. You guys were up there five days. Why don't we just start off giving me like a history of the area? Like, Give us a sense of where this peak is kind of in the greater Indian Himalaya. Sure, so uh, this mountain's located in the Suru Valley um, inside of the Zanskar Range, and it's located in the state of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. And this area in particular is fairly close to the Pakistan border, and that's one of the reasons that there are so many unclimbed peaks. It's it's basically been a war-torn area in the state of Kashmir since the uh, since the British withdrew from Asia in the 50s. Basically, the land partition, the way it worked out, um, Kashmir was part of India, um, although it is the only state that's majority Muslim, so Pakistan kind of always felt like uh, that should be their territory. And as a result, you know, there's not really a clear border there. If you look at maps, it's it's a dotted line because it's uh, it's the line of control, uh, basically that's been the disputed border uh, since that point in time. So, um, so the mountains in this uh, in this area 
most of them were only open to permitting in 2010. Um, so there's a huge concentration of unclimbed peaks in the 6,000-meter range um, in the Zanskar zone. So the Indian Mountaineering Federation, they kind of just announced that these, you know, close to 100 mountains were going to be opened. Um, what changed after so many years with all those peaks in that area? Well, it seemed like uh, around 2008, um, you know, Pakistan appointed a new a new leader, and, and violence seemed to slow. Um, kind of around that around that time. Also, there had been quite a bit of there's there's a lot of military presence there as well in the Suru. Um, a number of military checkpoints, and um, so I think maybe they felt like uh, like it was safe enough to start encouraging folks to go there. Obviously, this peak was you know, on this list of mountains that the IMF released, but how did you guys kind of find this particular objective and what's the process of kind of choosing an objective from this kind of sea of mountains that you've never really seen before? Yeah, I had actually, I had emailed a a company in India regarding logistics to go into, um, into the Kishtwar and they emailed me back and were like, yeah, we don't usually do that many trips there. We can probably figure it out. Um, in the meantime, here's a list of these peaks that just opened in 2010. Uh, and the permit like process is very streamlined for this. And it'd be, uh, you know, there's affordable peak fees and we could get you these permits really easy. And uh, so I started basically going down this list of mountains. And uh, the list that they provided with me with had the peak name the elevation and the latitude, longitude of the mountain. Uh, so I would basically Google the peak name and then uh, do a Google image search on it and then cross-reference that with the American Alpine Journal and find out um, if there was any real record of anybody climbing in that area. And then when I basically came across a mountain that looked uh, looked really cool and uh, had no record of being climbed, um, figured we'd, we'd give it a shot. So what's it like um, getting to, into this valley from, uh, from Delhi? Yeah, so you start, uh, you start off with a domestic flight. It's kind of the easiest way to, to do that. It takes a couple hours to fly from Delhi into Leh, uh, which is the capital of Ladakh. And that's when you land there, you're already over 11,000 feet in Leh, um, which is kind of a bit of a shock to the system. And it's also totally like a desert there it's so dry there's like they actually planted uh like purposely planted trees and and things in these different towns to try and increase the uh like amount of oxygen in the area um it's a really like totally desolate place when you get in there and uh from there you drive for two days um one of the days about eight hours in a in a jeep and then the next day is about, uh, depending on how far into the Suru Valley you're going, um, anywhere from kind of six to eight hours of driving uh, the next day. And then the mountains are pretty much rising right up out of the, uh, off the road. Um, so there's, you know, incredible relief right off the, um, right off the roads. And you pretty much just need to figure out how to cross the river. Uh, and then your base camp is shortly thereafter. Um, what was it like when you guys kind of laid eyes on this mountain for the first time? Had you seen pictures of it before you got there? Or? We had some like pictures basically taken from the road over at the mountain. Um, 
it was certainly it was one of those things where you saw it you were kind of stri- it was striking how steep it was uh and you know sometimes you look at a photo and you're looking at something you know, on your iPhone screen or whatever and you think oh it can't actually look that steep or that sustained but um it was if anything it was it was steeper uh steeper than we thought it was going to be yeah so you guys kind of originally tried a line directly up the north face um what was that first mm-hmm. attempt like yeah, so that had been our uh, kind of our main plan was to go up the up the North Face. Um, we had uh, we had heard there was a short uh, period of high pressure coming in, so we we had already been in our acclimatization. We'd already gone up to about eighteen thousand feet um, a couple of times and had gotten right into the um, like right on the Berkshund below the North Face. And uh, so when we heard there were maybe you know two three days of high pressure, we moved from our base camp, um, at like 12,500 feet all the way up to, um, to the Berkshund at, uh, just shy of 18,000 feet and spent the night, uh, sleeping inside the, inside the Berkshund. Um, and then went, uh, bumped up the next morning, uh, even though it was, it was kind of snowing lightly all day. Um, and we climbed, um, yeah, we were out probably for, for about 16 hours or so that day. Um, by the time we returned back to the, back to the Berkshund and, uh, it was just kind of one of those days where a lot of things weren't adding up to being right. Um, it felt like it was too, even though we had been up to 18, a couple of times before then, it felt like too fast of a bump to be sleeping up there, um, that night. So we both felt pretty sluggish the next day, uh, really deep trail break to get going. And it was, uh, I even had to like I had to aid off ice screws and pickets to get up through the Berkshund out of our uh out of our camp. So it was pretty much on us from uh right from the get go and, and anything that wasn't firm ice, uh you were kinda up to your up to your thighs in snow. So it was it was kinda slow going, um climbing through there and then we got into an ice runnel that we thought was gonna be like a you know, a seventy, seventy five degree runnel that we thought we were just gonna be cruising up. And that turned out to to end up being like seven pitches of Alpine Ice Five with some M five steps in it. So it was uh, quite a bit more time consuming than we thought. And from images, areas that we had located that we thought would be like a ledge or oh maybe we can find a spot to sleep behind this pillar, uh, just didn't pan out. And eventually, um, yeah, we were up there in the dark and it's still snowing on us, and uh, we were pretty worked and and decided that. Uh, that we should probably pull the plug on the first on the first go. What made you guys kind of switch your focus to the ridge instead of trying to get on the face? Yeah, so on the face, basically we um, kind of our en route uh, sleeping system, I guess, for there was um, a lightweight single wall tent, and then uh, we had one of the feathered friends, the spoonbill bags, you know, the two person uh, yep. sleeping bags with no zipper or anything on it. So. Um, we had kind of looked from the from the photos we'd seen. We figured there'd be enough, uh, you know, enough ledge systems or whatever to make that to to make that system work. And then being on the face, it would it would have been really hard to exit out of the runnel because most of the rock in there was fairly fractured, and uh, it wasn't like there was a clean line to get out of the runnel. So, kind of it seemed like sleeping in a hammock in the in the runnel would kind of be the only. Uh, uh, you know, real thing, unless you wanted to just have a total suffer fest to like sleeping in, in Dyneema slings or something like that for the night. And, uh, there's also enough stuff coming down off the face that we weren't all that excited about. Um, you know, just 
hanging out in one of those runnels for the night, um, especially with the with the snow that was happening most of the day. And we thought, you know, if we basically, even though the climbing was kind of slow on that first go on the north face, we we pushed to a height that was. Uh, um, we climbed beyond where we thought our first bivy would be on the on the face, and there was there was nothing in sight uh, for the foreseeable future uh, going up there. So we we knew we would kind of if we were going back on the north face, it'd be kind of like a probably a futile high pointing uh, attempt, or uh, or we'd have to get a heck of a lot tougher to to just sleep hanging in the runnel. Um, but you guys kind of got psyched on the ridge, as you were saying. It kind of looked more like a prow than a ridge when you finally saw it. There's a there's a glacier that uh, hangs high off the like the east side of the mountain, and the way that some of the photos look, the the ridge kind of blends in uh, with that glacier glacier on the left. So uh, so it kind of makes it look like you're almost like you're walking a snow slope for a lot of the time, um, and instead it's it's like a very separate feature, and uh, the ridge actually consistently overhangs to the um, to the east, um, as opposed to, uh, to be in a, a 60 degree snow slope on that side. So, um, so yeah, the ridge turned out to be excellent, uh, excellent climbing. And, you know, it's always nice, uh, even though you're doing a lot more pitches generally on a ridge, uh, you know, the ridge climbing is big climbing, but, uh, at least there's nothing, the objective hazard is generally quite a bit lower on a, on a ridge crest over being in a face. So, um, not not quite the stresses of wondering what's going to come down from above. Did you guys have any changes in your tactics based on the change in objective? I mean, walk me through kind of like what it's like to get packed and racked for a big route like this with a lot of unknowns. Um, how many days were you guys planning to be up there and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So the other the other thing that added a bit of a bit of pressure on our uh, basically came off after that. Uh, after that first go, we spent another night in that in that Berkshire Bivy N18, and then we came down the following morning. Um, and then we took, we were down probably by noon or you know 11 in the morning or something that that uh, next day. And then we had, uh, we took three full rest days at that point. And then uh, the afternoon of kind of the next the fourth day. Um, we hiked up to the toe of the glacier and slept there. Um, and basically from that point, from the day that we hiked up there, um, five days later, our porters were going to be, uh, back in base camp. So, uh, and that, that schedule planned on us exiting out of base camp that day, reversing the drive back. And then that, uh, you know, lined up with all of our flights home and everything. So it would have been a huge, uh, uh, quite costly if we had missed this Porter train on the, on the last day. So we started to have, uh, some time pressure factoring in. So we basically packed up with five days of stuff. Cause we we're like, well, one way or another, we kind of need to be back, uh, at this point in time. And so definitely in the, the 11th hour sort of thing. Um, and we packed up with yeah about, uh, you know, somewhere around 2000 calories, um, per person per day. And, had the same uh, the same sleep system that I had talked about before, and um, yeah, single rack of cams. I think around eight uh, eight ice screws, and um, yeah, one of the things we did differently this time was we slept at about sixteen thousand feet on the first night um, instead of doing that big uh, that big first bump up to eighteen thousand feet. Yeah, so day one, you guys had some pretty moderate climbing in a shorter day. 
Yeah, the first the first day on route was was fairly relaxed. Um, I felt I felt pretty crummy that uh, that morning getting going and it kind of like you know here we go again sort of thing. But as soon as we crossed, you know, trekked across the glacier for an hour and a half, two hours, and then we crossed the Berkshund in a different area, and we had um, nine rope lengths, so just yeah, perfect Alpine Ice Three um, climbing up to a coal, and kind of as soon as we started climbing. Um, I started feeling great and, uh, it, it moved along fairly well. And I think we were, we were in, we had a bivy stomped out, I think at four o'clock, um, that afternoon. So it was a pretty relaxed, um, relaxed first day. And yeah, we were camped in a beautiful call and, uh, had a a really good view of where we were, the terrain we were going to be going through the next day. Um, and that was kind of one of the bigger, uh, the terrain of the next day was kind of one of the bigger stresses or, or question marks of the route. Yeah, so the the kind of harder climbing really kicked in on day two. It did. Yeah, we had about you know we traversed this glacial call for uh, about sixty meters, and then after that it was uh, it was pretty on you. Um, we for ten uh, ten decently long pitches of mixed climbing, and everything was kind of at least uh, every pitch was at least in the M five range. Um, and so it was, it was quite sustained, and the rock quality, uh, the rock quality varied, but uh, you know was was good enough where we needed it to be good. Yeah. What uh, what was the bivy like on day two? That was pretty sweet. We ended up stumbling across a glacial cave on the uh, that night. It's the it's the bivy that you like that you dream of. It had rock walls. It had an ice uh, an ice roof to it. And was about four and a half feet wide. You had to take your backpack off in order to get in and out of the thing. Uh, totally flat floor. And it was the perfect size to set up a tent in. And so that was a nice uh, a nice reprieve for the night and not having to worry about getting hit by anything or uh, having a nice flat spot to sleep. So you guys got a good night's sleep on day three or on day two. And then sounds like the hard climbing continued on day three, huh? Yeah, we were so we had you know we kind of had to have like a fairly uh, serious talk on after the the night there that second day en route and it was like you know if the because we're here we are you know a couple days in with only you know 19 pitches done and still uh, you know what ended up being over 30 uh, pitches left to to climb and we had at this point you know we got like two more two more days until we need to be like getting back into our base camp again. So it was kind of one of those things of like, all right, if the climbing is, is just as slow and just as time consuming getting out of here today, like we're, you know, we're going to have to kind of make that, make that call and maybe have to pull the plug on this thing. And, uh, fortunately the climbing eased up a bit and was, you know, more, more steppy terrain that day and eased up a bit, uh, more into, you know, kind of the M4 kind of five, eight rock steps for the most part. And we, uh, we put quite a bit of ground below us, uh, early in the day. And then, but, but kind of from about two thirds of the way into the day, we noticed this big, like big looming pillar that appeared, there appeared to be no way around and we could see a crack system running through it. Um, and we were far enough away, we knew that it had to be uh, like a, a fairly wide chimney or, or off with pitch. And that uh, that created a fair, you know, it was kind of, you felt some weight of that on you uh, all day long, climbing up to that thing. And, and the terrain reaching that pillar was fairly complicated. And um, 
in one pitch, I had to do two different uh, tension traverses off a, uh, in both cases, off a knife blade pitons. But um, yeah, an ice runnel ended uh, into nothing. And then, uh, so I swung out onto this next section and then climbed up that until that was just a pretty much a vertical slab and sunk in another one and pendulum to cross into an ice runnel on the left side of the ridge. And, uh, and that brought us into, uh, the base of this, what turned out to be like a slightly overhanging, uh, six inch off with crack. Um, and you guys probably didn't have wide gear with you, huh? We had one number three Camelot that was being utilized in the anchor before that pitch. So yeah, I, I was pretty glad that I had spent like a long time being being pretty obsessed with off with climbing. That definitely came in handy. I didn't I didn't expect to need to be like you know hand fist stacking at six thousand meters, but uh, but I was I was glad that I had you know spent all those uh, all those years being excited about about climbing the uh, five and six inch cracks down in Indian Creek. So <laughs> um, so I totally you know for about forty or fifty feet you know you're just knee barring your way up up through it and uh i completely shredded my hard shell pants in the process of going up there but uh managed to get a couple a couple pitons into some horizontals uh did you end up tagging the pack up through that i did yeah i clipped my so i had i put in an angle and then clipped my backpack off to that and uh yeah tino got there and was shocked that uh that my backpack had had managed to stay there the whole time because he removed the angle with his fingers and um (laughs) along with the other two, you know, kind of just psychological protection as you're going up, uh, along the thing. I think I had a double, a double zero C3 and a horizontal as well. And yeah, that was kind of the, the gear for the, for the pitch. But, uh, but yeah, probably the best piece of protection I had was just not having my backpack on for that, uh, for that pitch. So, uh, you made it through that relatively unscathed and then, uh, you guys had kind of a less than optimal bivy that night though, huh? Yeah, that was pretty, that was that was pretty full on the next, uh, the next evening. So, you know, we, we climbed that pitch and the sun was basically going down at that point. And we, we thought we just had from the top of that pillar, we thought we just had a snow slope to connect into our planned divvy spot and, uh, came up over this pillar and then kind of thought, you know, all right, we're home free on this, this, ice traverse into this section for the bivy and you know had one more little uh kind of curveball that got thrown at us uh another yeah slabby step of rock to get through but but we 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 eventually right as the sunset we got into this uh this snow arit that sat on top of a, a huge ship's prow and we had identified this feature as like kind of the one main place on the upper headwall that a bivy could be possible so this is where our north ridge ran into the north face um, in kind of the upper steepest section of it. And, uh, we chopped, started chopping into that. Um, and the wind just started ripping. It had been calm wind, like perfect, perfect conditions all day long. And now all of a sudden it's dark out and we're chopping into this bivy and the wind is like, is ripping like, yeah, probably 40 to 50 mile an hour sustained winds. And we're at, uh, we're at 6,100 meters, like, out here on this, on this, like, you know, basically a wind fin that's sticking out off the face. And, uh, we, we chopped in quite a ways and then we eventually hit rock, uh, in it. So, you know, the one section where you hope it's like the deepest snow and deepest ice turns out to be, uh, a bit shallower snow cover. And we had about two thirds of a tent platform that was done and figured we could kind of, we, that was kind of about as much as we were going to get. And so, um, yeah, we were anchored in and 
with the wind ripping like that, Tino was like laying inside the tent, getting the poles set up. And I was like, yeah, hanging, basically hanging onto the tent, trying to keep it down onto the, on the ground. Uh, and we got, we eventually got in there and, you know, we're sitting on the uphill side of the tent, making water and, and all that stuff. And then, you know, it came time to, all right, let's try and, you know, try and lay down in this thing. And I started laying slightly on the, on the downhill side of it. And it, the platform kind of crumpled away and we had about half of a half a tent width to go so we we spent the night like sleeping on the uphill side of the tent or uh you know basically tino was was using my ass as a pillow for the night and we were kind of just spooning on the uphill side of the tent and uh you know eventually like you know my leg would fall asleep we'd have to sit up for a while and then uh lay down again and uh Maybe got maybe got a couple hours of sleep uh, that night, but it was uh, it, it was certainly a rough night being up there uh, on the prow. And then uh, you guys had like a kind of one more pitch of hard climbing that you could see. Yeah, we knew that we had some like some trickery to do to get off this upper upper headwall, um, and we saw one one section went straight above our bivy and had there was a chimney with like a bunch of loose blocks inside of it. And so we weren't that excited about going up that that option. And then we saw another another runnel to the right uh, that we could we figured we could repel off the prow and kind of pendulum out into this next um, this next section. And it was a a chimney system that had some ice. I could see some ice on the top of it, and I could see some ice pouring out the bottom of it. Uh, but we couldn't see into the center of it at all. Um, so we repelled like 45 meters out off the off the prow and swung out off into this next thing and built an anchor right at the base of this runnel and still I couldn't uh, I couldn't quite climb out there without a belay to actually see into the into the runnel. Um, so we stopped. Uh, we you know built the anchor. We repelled down and then we yeah we had to pull our ropes from there before we um, committed into the next the next runnel. Um, and that was that was kind of one of the more probably one of the more committing places that I've been into because there wasn't uh, yeah it wasn't clear that the line went through that gully and then in order to climb back up onto the prow to try a different option would have been pretty involved um, climbing as well it wasn't like we're just uh, you know repelling uh, sixty degree ice or something to get into this next section it was uh, you know repelling off an overhanging prow uh, three thousand feet up a, a wall uh, trying to get into this next runnel and, and knowing that you only have about a hundred and thirty meters or so of uh, of climbing left to get you off this uh, off this face but yeah it turned out the next pitch turned out to be you know probably definitely definitely the coolest pitch I've ever climbed in a in the alpine uh, setting like that but uh, yeah, the just enough kind of thin smears of ice connected together um, that uh, yeah we were able to able to make it go and and climb through the the rock quality actually got exceptional in that area which uh, which took out some of the sting of it as well of actually being able to trust the small gear but um, but yeah just these little kind of thin tapping up uh, up these little tongues of ice that reach down and and a mix of that and and the seams of granite. Uh, made for some excellent excellent climbing uh to get through there and i ditched my pack again for that one yeah how did it feel to kind of finish that final crux and know that barring any anything crazy you guys kind of had the root in the bag yeah so that that was definitely like finishing that uh that pitch was definitely a 
a thrill for sure. And the, the thing that's always drawn me into alpine climbing and, and exploring new routes and new areas is that um, is kind of solving the puzzle and seeing how the terrain can get linked together and, and pieced together and, uh, you know, coming around the corner and seeing the next, the next crux or getting to one anchor and then being presented with a whole new uh, set of problems is uh, kind of what's always appealed to me and, and uh, kind of kept me mentally engaged with climbing for this long. Um, surviving through that pitch was kind of, uh, yeah, definitely a bigger highlight for me than standing on top of the mountain because I kind of knew that that was the final piece of the puzzle that we had to solve. And uh, and having it be solved by such a, an elegant pitch of climbing was uh, um was was quite a thrill cool and then yeah it was just some some calf burning summit slopes to the top yeah definitely we were uh we were feeling it pretty good by that point in uh in time and so we were simul climbing along and yeah in two different sections up up that uh kind of you know fairly common theme i'm sure of you know kind of just never ending like 50 degree slopes that you're just hoping are gonna are going to either soften enough to kick a step into or, uh, or ease off an angle. And yeah, we both had to clip into ice screws a couple of times and, and, uh, shake our calves out while we were finishing those upper, upper slopes. And, uh, did you guys hang out on the summit for very long or did you kind of had a, you kind of time schedule by this point? Huh? <laughs> well, well, we were kind of on a time crunch. I also, I also managed to do the super pro move of, uh, sending my only pair of sunglasses down the North face at, uh, at like 6,300 meters at 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, before we had planned to descend the West face of the mountain. Um, so yeah, I pulled a sling off my head and my glasses just launched and, uh, like right as we were going into the sun. So that, that created kind of a fun, uh, a fun added time pressure of the day of like wondering how long it was going to be until I went snow blind, um, <laughs> up high. <laughs> uh, so we didn't hang out on the summit for too long to answer your question. We kind of took a few, uh, you know, snapped a few photos, high-fived, and, uh, and yeah, started figuring out how we were going to get down off the, off the peak. Yeah. And you guys went down the west side of the mountain? We did, yeah, which, which we thought was going to be – appeared that we could just kind of walk down the snow on that west side. And that, that turned out to be a bit more a bit more heads up. It was pretty firm terrain in there and kind of right on that borderline of, of uh, you know, right in that kind of 50-degree, 60-degree range where it's you kind of just need to repel even though it's not that steep a terrain. And uh, early on, we had to repel through some fairly large um, seracs that then jeopardized us for the remainder of our descent down. So I think we did somewhere around 20 V-threads uh, to get down off of that ice face. Um and basically we'd, you know, we'd kind of alternate who was going to lead the next, the next repel. So, uh, you know, if like Tino was going first, I would just stand at the top anchor with my eyes closed and then, uh, repel down the, down there and then get to Tino and then grab his sunglasses and put those on. And then he'd keep his eyes closed while I, you know, while we did the next repel and built the next V thread and then, uh, so on. So a combo is switching the, switching the glasses back and forth and then, um, once we started walking, you know, just kind of every three steps, I'd open my eyes up again and, uh, uh, just try to minimize the amount of time that my eyes were getting UV. Well, that's a good climbing partner. He's just willing to go snow blind with you. Yeah. We were, you know, just committed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys made it back to camp just in time to meet the porters. Yeah. We got back into camp probably around like 10, 10 o'clock or something that night. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, then the, the porters showed up the following morning and, uh, it was the smoothest exit ever. So we had basically, uh, you know, we spent one night in our base camp next morning, hiked out. And then six hours after that, we're like, we're in a hotel. And, uh, so yeah, like thinking back to like where, where we had been on that prow bivy, you know, whatever, 36 hours before. And now we're like, you know, in a hotel room and, and we actually had to, we had to laugh when we got in the hotel room, you know, the, the room that they had gotten for us had one, uh, it had one king size bed in it, in the room. And, uh, so I was like, Hey, Hey Tino, you know, you're going to be all right sleeping this far away from me tonight while we're, uh, you know, while we're sharing this king size bed. <laughs> well, that's awesome. It sounds like a really cool adventure. Thanks a lot for taking the time to chat about the route. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for your interest. got to say, Alan downplays the difficulty sometimes, but fortunately there's photographic evidence to show how badass some of this climbing actually was. You can see a photo of that elegant crux pitch near the top of Bingo Farca and other images from the climb at our new website. Just Google AHA Cutting Edge Podcast to find it. Thanks again to Chilo Gear, Gravel, and Bale Ropes for supporting this episode of The Cutting Edge. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, wishing you happy climbs.